Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Uh, today I am in Bozeman, Montana, like I have been, uh, sheltered in place here for the last six weeks, probably seven weeks. Uh, hope you're all doing well. Hope your health is good. Um, we're really getting caught up on a lot of podcasts, that's for sure. Uh, today, I'm going to have uh, my buddy Mark Kenyon. Uh, you've heard Mark on our podcast before. I've been on his podcast, the Wired to Hunt podcast. Uh, Mark is now part of the Meat Eater group. Uh, a bunch of great guys also here in Bozeman that we get to visit and talk war stories quite frequently. Uh, but Mark has written a book called That Wild Country. Uh, the subtitle is An Epic Journey Through the Past, Present, and Future of America's Public Lands. And Mark was kind enough to send me an advanced copy. I felt bad. I was on the road, didn't get a chance to read it. And I was so busy, I went and bought the Audible version and got to listen to it. And towards the end, he starts talking about this bear hunt he and I went on while he was out here in Montana. And I had no idea. He'd not told me that that was part of the book. And I felt so embarrassed when I finally figure that out by listening to it uh, on Audible. Uh, so anyhow, uh, Mark is a very smart guy. He's really a, a strong, strong voice, a, a leader, and, and a very wise person when it comes to these topics of public lands and conservation. And he's really a student of the history of it. And I, I just appreciate him jumping in to this mix and saying, you know what, I'm going to stick my neck out there. I'm going to write a book on this topic through my eyes of how I've seen it and how it's influenced me. I mean, as someone who knows Mark and has read this book uh, or listened to it now, I guess I'd say, I just wanted to share it with all of you that it's out there. Uh, let Mark give some explanation about how it how it came to be, uh, what stories, what, what public land experiences were, were part of it and give some, some background and context to that. And I'm sure if it's like every other conversation Mark and I have, it'll drift here to there and who knows where. Uh, but he's a great guy. Uh, hopefully you'll, when it's all said and done, you'll go out and you'll purchase his book, That Wild Country. And if you don't already, hopefully you listen to his podcast, uh, the Wired to Hunt podcast. Uh, but want to make sure that before I tap him in here to the to the phone line, that you know that this podcast is brought to you by Leupold. Uh, go to leupold.com. Uh, all their new products, even some of their existing products, uh, they're all out there. Uh, a great company that does so much for public lands and conservation and hunting and shooting. Uh, also employs over 700 uh, great employees there in Beaverton, Oregon. Um, I, I'm just really proud that they are a company that is, is wanting to be associated with our platforms and wants to help support our audience. And if you get a chance, I hope you'll support them. Uh, also, Onyx Maps. Go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code Randy and save 20% on their app products. And once you have it downloaded on your, your desktop, your laptop, or your phone, whatever, wherever you would use it, 
you will spend hours and hours and hours e-scouting, just like I do. Um, again, use promo code Randy and save 20%. And then we have Go Hunt. Uh, right now, uh, we have a deal going on out at Go Hunt that there's two benefits if you use promo code Randy when you sign up for their insider. First, they're going to give you a $50 gift card to go buy stuff in their gear shop, which is a serious backcountry gear shop for hunters. And then in the first week of July, they're going to have a drawing for a Wyoming commissioner's tag, which is what it is. You can convert that to any elk, deer, or antelope hunt code, a tag for any hunt code in the Wyoming regulations, I think there's a hunt, an elk hunt around Jackson that it might not qualify for. But other than that, if you're the name drawn in early July by Go Hunt, uh, you're going to get that commissioner's tag and you are going to have one heck of a hunt this year. Uh, and again, anyone who uses promo code Randy signing up for the Insider gets put in that drawing uh, from we're running at July 1st of 19 to June 30th of 2020. So hopefully you're that lucky person. But with that, uh, I'm going to hit the, the keyboard here. And through the magic of technology, our buddy Mark Kenyon is going to be on the other line, I hope. So thanks for being here. Really appreciate all your support. Hey, folks, I told you that we had or have a guest today uh, that's been on this podcast before. And uh, actually, he's had me on his podcast uh, a time or two. And that's uh, all the way. You're all the way from Western Michigan today, aren't you, Mark? Yeah. Yeah. Down in the southern part of the state and uh, wishing I was more in your neck of the woods right now, though. It's It's been kind of lousy, cold and rainy down here. Um, wow. I don't know. I've, I've seen pictures of nicer weather out by you. Well, that was until today. Today, <laughs> it's about 20 miles an hour, 40 degrees and raining, trying to snow. So, so much for springtime in the Rockies, right? Yeah, I know it. It's, wow. it's a springtime I wish would get here faster for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, for lots of reasons. Is it turkey season back there right now? Yep, it just opened up six days ago, five, five, yeah. six days ago. So yes, yeah. it is open. Do your uh, shelter-in-place rules allow you to go out and do those fun things right now? You know, yes, it does. Um, I'm just a little bit unique in that we only get one turkey tag in Michigan and okay. we are trying to film my turkey hunt in Michigan for our show, the back 40 yeah. and we can't film it given the shelter in place order. Can't get a cameraman yeah. out there with me. So we're just waiting for that to hopefully open up so we can safely, you know, responsibly film a hunt um, later in the spring, but it's killing me not to be able to hunt. So I actually have gone out without a gun just by myself to just call birds and try to have a little fun and, and hear the sounds of spring so that's how i'm dealing yeah. with it right now well i thought mark kenyon wasn't just the leader of the hunting podcast world but i thought you were well we're going to get into the fact that you're now uh on the new york times bestseller list or, or close. <laughs> i wish and I, th I thought you could at least be your own videographer and sound guy at the same time <laughs> You know, I, I used to, I used to do that stuff, but now uh, the folks at Mediator don't like the quality of myself filming enough. I guess so. <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have well, a market for guys that you work with. They're just across the not maybe two miles from where I'm recording this right now. If I could go over there, I'd leave a sticky note on their door and say, "Hey, my buddy Mark <laughs> is better than you think." You, you let him know. Freedom. 
Oh yeah, I uh, it'll it'll be nice to get out there and finally uh, get after them. That's for sure. Yeah, cool. Well, we've uh, in Montana here. Our crew has been out doing a little bit of it. I've sent the camera guys out to film themselves. That way, if the self filming doesn't turn out that well, I can blame them, not me. See, that's a good situation you've got. I am the worst turkey hunter in North America. I remember you talking at one point about how it wasn't your, really wasn't your cup of tea. Have you warmed up on it at all in the last couple of years or? No, no. I, I haven't been turkey hunting since 2009, I believe. Oh, my life. I know. How stupid is that, right? <laughs> the amount of bear hunting and muskrat and beaver trapping I've done instead of turkey hunting I'm I, that it's a pretty impressive slate of of things I've done while everyone else is turkey hunting. That's that's fair, and I got to tell you, I'm very jealous that you can do, especially the bear side of things. I, I was I was wanting to try to do a bear hunt this year, and it's been on my radar ever since you and I went on that hunt a few years ago. Now I've wanted mm-hmm. to get back and do it, and now because of all the travel restrictions and everything, right now this year's out. Um, yeah. But here in Michigan, you know, I don't have that kind of hunt available. So it's um, looking at the pictures and seeing everything on YouTube and elsewhere. And, and I'm very jealous, very jealous. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Mark, I, I really think that you'd uh, thank you for taking time. I know with uh, being sheltered in, you and your wife working from home and having two small boys and trying to get all your other stuff done for your Wired to Hunt podcast for your all the stuff you do with meat eater. Um, I'm sure that time is, is a scarce commodity. So thanks for sharing some of it with us. Hey, you are welcome. It's my pleasure. The, the purpose why I asked you to do this is you sent me an advanced copy of your new book, that wild country. And it came while I was on the road, I think sometime in November. And I kept saying I was going to read it and read it. And it sat there on my desk the few days I was home. And I didn't read it. And finally, when trade show season started, I didn't know I could go to Audible and buy a a digital copy. But I would prefer that people buy a hard copy from you because I want you to get absolutely filthy rich from this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I'm... I'm on an airplane. I can't remember which one of the flights and I'm listening and I'm like, ah, this is good. And some of it's making me laugh. And then you get to the end, towards the end and you start talking about our bear hunt together. And I was so embarrassed. I'm like, no wonder Mark sent me an advanced copy. He's talking about a hunt we shared and I didn't even have the courtesy to read the damn book. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I mean, so you know how when you have your phone on airplane mode, you, you can type a text and it says, you know, you can't go through it. It'll send the text when you, yeah. when your service on. So I'm on that flight and I sent you this probably four page text. <laughs> yes. I'm, and I'm like, come on, land. I want to send Mark this text. I want to apologize now. So uh, anyway, and no need to, no need to apologize. I I really appreciate you taking, uh, taking the time to write the book and I'm flattered that our, our couple days there chasing bears to no avail here in Montana, uh, was something you felt worthy of putting in there. Oh yeah. Well, it so, was, 
it was a great, it was a great experience. And, you know, as I, as I tried to communicate in the book, you, you, you've been a, such a positive influence and, uh, and mentor from afar for me that, uh, that it, it would have been a shame if I, if I didn't give you some of that credit in there for sure. And, and talk about that. I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but this was a long time ago. This was right at the very, very beginning when I was starting to think about writing the book, probably 2016 or 15, maybe even probably 16. Um, I brought it up to you in a phone call and just said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Do you think this is crazy? Do you think I can pull it off? Do you remember this? I remember I was in my mother-in-law's house in a guest bedroom talking to you. Do you remember that at all? I don't. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I remember just getting a really nice, uh, boost of confidence from you in saying, you know, just kind of giving me the encouragement to, to try it, to go for it. And, uh, and that meant something that really meant something. So cool. I, I remember when we met at a coffee shop one time, you brought it up and said something. Remember that book thing I was telling you about? I think it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yep. cool. I can think of anyone I'd want writing and doing it more than you. Uh, so it, how hard has it been to write a book? I mean, it, all of us who produce media some way along, somewhere along the way probably get asked to write a book. Uh, people ask me to write a book about all the haunts I've screwed up, which that would be like a 12-volume set or something. <laughs> uh, but is it a completely different mindset required to communicate in a book than it is, say, your podcast or the video content that you do? Yeah, yeah, it really was night and day. Um, without a doubt, the hardest thing I've worked on ever. Just just uh, the scale of it, I think, is one thing. And then trying to synthesize so much different information and then funnel it down into you know, what I want to communicate in the book. Cause as you know, from listening to the book and if people have read it, it's, it's kind of a two-sided story. Part of it is my own experiences out there exploring public lands. Part of it is my, um, my synthesis of the history and present state of the public land debate and, and, and how we got these places and the controversies around them and, and various things like that. So I had to do a whole lot of research, reading and listening and watching things. And so taking in this crazy amount of kind of dense historical text and, and information and then trying to figure out, okay, what are the, just a few things that really need to get out here to just get this foundation built for people in a way that's readable and, and interesting. So, I mean, it was, it was years trying to put it all together. Well, as someone who gets a chance to dive into a lot of this stuff, whether I read it or listen to it, the way that you approached it, telling the story about you and Kylie, right? I, yep. yep. I hope I didn't I always forget if it's Kaylee or Kylie. Um, and then the one about you and your dad and was it your sister? Yes. On the yeah. hike up on the, the Lake Superior, uh, telling it through those eyes and what you're thinking and what you're observing and how it's affecting you, that's a very powerful way to tell a story that you're trying to get people to understand something that might be public lands, wilderness, might be somewhat abstract to people if they don't get to experience it like we do. And the way you did it, uh, your shed hunting in the in the little Missouri country, it was it was really good. It, it it's borderline adventure and and storytelling with 
an awful lot of history woven in among all that. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you I'm glad that you felt that way that it that it was good and enjoyable because I mean that was the thing when I was putting this together was that there is I mean there are books out there that cover this stuff in much greater detail. Um, there's all sorts of stuff online you can read about these things. There's some documentaries, but almost everything is really, really, really dense. I mean, you have to be fully committed to getting into serious historical stuff to, to learn some of these things. But, you know, as you know better than anyone, it's, it's important that the average, you know, guy and gal out there uh, kind of has a foundation of understanding about public lands to, to be able to participate in the current um, the current fights, the current defense of these places. If you don't understand where we came from, how can we know where we're going and make sure it's the right place? So I just felt like what was out there, at least a lot of what was out there, I, I didn't want to really read on my average, you know, Thursday night laying in bed. I wasn't going to churn through a book on these things. If the, you know, what would somebody else think if it was that kind of, kind of dry, tough to get through text? So I thought, the kind of book I would want to read about this would be something fun. I'd want to go on an adventure. And if along the way during that adventure, I learned some things, well, then that's pretty cool. So I tried to write the book I wanted to read. Um, and I did the best I could. I, I hope it's, I hope it achieved that. Um, I look back, I just was kind of paging through some things earlier today. And I already thought to myself, man, I wish I'd written that a little differently or I wish I could redo this or <laughs> always a critic, I guess. But, uh, it's interesting that you say that because about my second or third question I had for you here is you must have learned a ton writing a book, a completely different format of, of delivery. And the question that I came from that is how has it changed the way you communicate a very complex topic that we we know intuitively kind of, but you know your audience isn't living, breathing it every day. How do you, has this changed how you communicate this topic of public lands and all the nuances and complexities? Yeah, I mean, I think it does, but I think for two, two reasons. I think number one, the, the process, like this whole book process, writing the book was in itself learning this stuff. You know, I had to learn these things myself too. Like the reason why I wanted to write this book was because you know, you and I were having these conversations in 2015 and you were describing to me the land transfer movement and the sagebrush rebellion. And I was hearing these catchphrases, these words, and I was saying, okay, what does that mean? And then after we talked, I would go back and Google it and learn a little bit about the sagebrush, sagebrush rebellion or trying to understand what this piece of legislation did or what this difference was between this type of land and that type of land. And I thought to myself, if I, I live in this kind of world. This is like my career. These are the things that we're talking about. If I don't understand all of this, I got to believe there's a whole lot of other people um, who are in the same boat. So that is what pushed me to do this. So I now communicate or I talk about these things both from a more informed position simply because this book represents my own personal journey of learning a whole lot more. So I know a lot more than I used to. But I do think that I have a different how do you how do you say this? I think because I was that layman, I was that person from the Midwest. I don't live surrounded by public lands. I didn't grow up in this in that you know I was surrounded by millions of acres and it was a part of my daily existence. So I come from this background of of not understanding the context. So because of that, I think I recognize the importance of starting at the very base bottom of the 
building when I'm trying to describe something. So I, I, I think that I am better at starting the basics and helping people understand those simplest things and knowing that, hey, we're not going to talk about you know, the long-term implications of the Wilderness Act until we first understand what each one of these other things is or establish some simple set of vocabulary even to start having those conversations. So I guess that's a long way of saying that this whole book writing forced me to rethink um, how we talk about these things, the words we use, thinking about who that audience is and what level of understanding they have. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're going through the same thing too. You're constantly thinking and rethinking, how can you do it better still? It's, it's a constant evolution, but this, this project certainly put me through the ringer and, and hopefully I'm a better communicator for that. Yeah. It's, you know, one of the, complexities or by uh, laziness i'll call it for me is i've been involved in the politics of this stuff for 30 years and you just start making some assumptions that everybody else that you're talking to has been doing this for 30 years and you just jump right in and start rambling and carrying on and the, the benefit for me is now having platforms where I engage on this topic regularly, you know, somewhat controversially, uh, you really start getting feedback of where people are, both from their personal perspective, which is formed by their life experiences, is how I feel. Uh, you know, it's not that someone is right or wrong; it's just whatever opinion they have at that time or perspective is. You know, they had a life that led them to get to this point. Um, I've become way more aware of the the differences and in, in the fact that pretty much everyone I talk to is concerned about public lands, clean air, clean water. And my message might come across to them like, man, that guy's weird. That Newberg guy, I don't know about him. And <laughs> so I try to investigate that further. What, what was it about the message or the content or the delivery that – caused you to think that my way of presenting it was off the wall. Um, so it's been this feedback experience for me that has really changed how I deliver, uh, how deep I go at certain times, what platforms I use, like a podcast that you and I do with your Wired to Hunt podcast. We can go into hour, two-hour discussions. And so you, the way you approach a topic is way different in a podcast than it's going to be if I'm doing a three-minute YouTube video. Yeah. And I, I just have to be so aware of that. And it's it's been very helpful to me that it, it reels me back to look at it and try to look at it how you just explained. If I'm going to become an advocate or be an advocate and convince people that my case has some validity – I better start from where they're seeing this world, not from where I see it with 30 years of experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a tough, that's a tough thing I think to do. Um, and I guess that was, it's funny. One of the, one of the concerns I had going to this project, going into the book was a little bit of imposter syndrome. So why should I write this book? Like how am I, worthy of writing this book. I don't, I don't live in Montana. I'm not surrounded by this. I haven't been involved in public land politics for 30 years like you have. Um, you know, what right do I have to try to talk about this stuff? And I, I wrestled with that. And what it, 
the way I decided to approach things and the reason why I felt like I could write this book is because I could write this book from the true perspective that I'm coming from. That mm-hmm. being, I, I, I come from outside of this. I don't live surrounded by these things. I, don't ha- I didn't previously have this knowledge. I haven't been involved, but I really am passionate and desperate to learn more. And there's so many people around me that I think are in the same boat. So... I tried to share what that journey was like of trying to bridge that gap of realizing there's this thing I've been missing out on and I need to get, I need to get educated quick because there's all these things going on. And so I thought if I could honestly share that personal journey I went on, um, that would probably resonate with a whole lot of people that were probably in a similar place. Um, because most people, oh, while I wish this wasn't true, most people out there listening right now, um, aren't like you, Randy. They haven't been involved in this for 30 years. Most people are out there maybe just knowing, hey, Yellowstone's this cool place I saw on National Geographic. I'd love to get there someday. Um, Or maybe they've been to a park. That's what probably the average person out there is is thinking about when it comes to public land. So if, if somehow I could present them something that's relatable because you know we were in the same boat not that long ago, maybe that could get more folks a little bit more interested. So that's that's what I was wow. hoping I maybe could achieve with this. You, you, I think you you definitely did that. The the journey, as you were just explaining, of all the places you went to, the evolution of the relationship with you and Kylie of how uh, being outdoors and being active and enjoying these public lands, it, you almost got this sense that that was somewhat of a formative part of of your relationship where you end up getting married and having two kids and it becomes part of your career as you go forward it's it's a compelling way to tell it mark i'm i'm very glad that you did it the way you did and when you say imposter syndrome i i I, (laughs) you were the right guy with the right view of the world and the right journey to do it the way you did yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I, I, I hope I hope that it's uh, you know can make a positive difference. I hope some folks can read it and enjoy it and learn something. And if just one person has that kind of experience with it, then I think it was worth it. Yeah, I I could pick and choose all my little pieces that were my favorites, and uh, this has nothing to do with public land. But before we turned on the mic, I told you I was on an airplane laughing my ass off. <laughs> listening to the part of of you trying to drain your uh the, in your little travel trailer you're so excited to have this trailer and then you you get to well we got to get this toilet tank drain back out, <laughs> or whatever you called it in the book i'm thinking to myself you know what if i pulled up to a place i've never owned a trailer like that i wouldn't have a clue there would be sewage going all over hell, just like it was for you. It's, it's, I, I don't want to give away all the beans because I want people <laughs> to buy the book, but that's hilarious because, one, I know you. I know what a conscientious uh, person you are. And I could just see you standing there trying to get this tank drained and shit flying. Oh, I was so stressed. I was so stressed, Randy. I was just losing it. And my wife was on a on a business conference call trying to talk to people, and I'm panicking and stressed out and had no idea what I was doing. And it, you know, as, as I described in the book, this was coming at the tail end of what had already been this stressful series of events, taking a camper out West for the first time, everything's falling apart. Everything's going wrong. It was just, it was, uh, it was one of those memories that in the moment it was a disaster, but looking back on it, I find a lot of joy now. <laughs> Uh, 
yeah, it's one of those things. It's funnier in the rearview mirror than when it's right there in front of you. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's the truth. A couple other things that, as I started listening, and you were talking about when you were going to do your trip in the Bob Marshall with your buddy, and you oh, had yeah. this idea about using inflatable rafts or pack rafts uh, to cross the lake. Yeah, as someone who has spent a lot of time up there, because it's not that far from where I live. As quick as you said that was your idea, before I even heard the rest of it, I'm like, I wonder if Mark knows how hard the freaking wind blows up there. <laughs> and then I get further into it, and you're talking about what a stupid idea this was. Yeah, and, yeah I know I mean, now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how, how the wind blows now. <laughs> yeah, that was another one of those moments where I looked at my buddy, I'm like, do we just bite off a whole lot more than we can chew? <laughs> uh, and it's funny, we, we used some of the same pack rafts I think that you're using now. I saw you post some pictures recently. Yeah. Um, something similar to those at least. Yeah, um, the pack of ones. Yeah, and they were really cool. I mean, it was tough in that windy spell on that lake, but once we got going and once the weather cleared up, they really were great for what we were trying to do. That was That is one of my very favorite trips um, yeah. from the whole book and really ever. I mean, that was a, that was a special experience. Yeah, it's uh, we're we're trying to do. I think not, did I tell you the Cecil Garland scapegoat story before? I don't know if I do. I don't know if I do know that. Oh, so we're trying to get a wilderness uh, film permit to go up to where you were in the Bob to tell the Cecil Garland story, and it is such a compelling story. Um, a lot of people. We've got a lot of positive feedback on the story we just did about the Yellowstone river and how Jim Pozzola yeah. and his pals kept that from being damned and how at the time they, you know, were th- pretty much thrown out of town as being a bunch of fools and destroying all these jobs and everything. And now with 40 years of hindsight, the Yellowstone river, not being dewatered paradise Valley, not being underwater uh, from a reservoir and a dam Jim looks like a, him, him and the scientists that were with him, they look like geniuses. Oh, yeah. and, uh, so this whole Cecil Garland story is, is very similar in a lot of respects. And what we're trying to do is put together a series of, of stories that talk about just average folks who made such a remarkable difference to what, what we enjoy today. If, if I always say if there's a landscape or a river or a waterway or, or a grassland that you cherish, I would bet any money there is a story of some local person who stood up and answered the call. And if we knew those stories, we'd hold them up as heroes of the day. And mm-hmm. the, where you were at in the Bob Marshall uh, that just south of there is the scapegoat wilderness. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Cecil Garland story we're trying to tell is is part of the scapegoat. Those those stories of, of people like that, I think those are, I, I wish in a perfect world, I wish I'd been able to cover more stories like that within the book. Um, because I think, you know, hearing about Teddy Roosevelt is great and we need to have that understanding and it's fascinating and, and people like that, these these larger than life figures, obviously they're larger in life for a reason, but there's something to be said about the average guy or girl who who makes a big difference like Jim did, despite not being the president or not being 
a famous person, that's so empowering, I think, for, for just an average person like me or someone else to think, oh, wow, any one of us could do something pretty darn special. It, you don't have to have some immense political power or something. Um, you know, we can all make a difference. That's, that's an important thing to be reminded of. That's what I, I feel the same way. And I, it was quite a while ago, about two years ago, I told some people on the podcast or told the listeners on the podcast that we're trying to do these kind of stories. And we did one about a group of volunteers in Nevada who go out and build water guzzlers. Uh, they do it through their organization, the fraternity of the desert bighorn. That was a cool story. Uh, we told the Yellowstone story. So I, I was telling people about these stories we want to tell of just average folks. And I need to go dig out some of these emails because it became very apparent that there are way more stories than I have time or money to go and tell. Uh, and one of them that struck me was this email I got from a guy from Florida about the, there was this, uh, in somewhere in Southern Florida, this really great duck hunting area and it was going to be drained for water control, flood control, whatever, so that the surrounding areas could be developed for, uh, residential and commercial development. And this guy, uh, I can't remember his name. He was such a pain in everybody's ass that the the local authorities or state authorities said, you know what, we got to get this done. Let's leave this guy's lake here, this however many hundreds acres or thousand acre or whatever it is. Let's leave his duck hunting spot how it is, and we'll just <laughs> work around it. Yep. Well, now here we are, however many years later, that guy is gone. But because he stood up and said, not on my watch, the most used waterfowl hunting spot in that part of Florida is still intact. Wow. Gosh, I got to, I wish I had the money to go down and tell that story. I wish I had enough people and resources. And, and then Posowitz was telling me another story about a guy from South Carolina, uh, equally compelling. I'm like, Oh, there are just, <laughs> there's so many things. And I, I did a presentation Oh, in February, it was about how it, in my years of listening to these stories and uncovering them, to me, it's quite natural that a country founded on government for the people and by the people has conservation for the people and by the people. We, we have lands and waters for the people protected by the people it's it, the more you you look at it through these lenses the more you realize there's some common traits in what we do and every one of them the remarkable things are usually done by like you said not presidents not famous people not celebrities it's done by just the local folks who say this is important to me and I, I i just get really excited and enthused about those kind of stories i i wish oh, i could yeah. tell them better well, I I love the fact that you're you're taking these taking the time to put together these films because that's a great way to do it. And and I remember when you first told me about the story of of Jim there in the Yellowstone, and it was it was when I was camped out right on the edge of the river there before a bear hunt, I think. And you mentioned to me when we were driving, you said, you know, this place almost got flooded, and and yeah, I mean, if that had been the case, who knows? I might not have been there at all for that trip i may not have went bear hunting with you we may not have all all these things that led to this book to these stories being told to 
you know, however many million other people's lives would have been changed because of that. Um, yeah, that is one of the cool things about what we have here in America is that we all can, through political discourse, through advocacy, through all sorts of different means, through a whole lot of things we've seen over the last couple of years, the impact we can still have. We can change the direction of the Titanic every once in a while. Yeah. And thank goodness. And yeah. I think that was one of the cool things, one of the coolest things coming out of this process for me was you, you, we've started to see over the last two years some of the positive results of all the work that a lot of individuals have been doing over the last five, six years. Um, obviously, it's been much longer than that for in a lot of cases, but you know, especially things going on in 2015, 16, 17, pushing back on the land transfer movement, everything that you've helped lead, and then seeing the turnaround and things like the Dingle Johnson Act last spring and then this year, the fact that you know, hopefully we'll be able to get the land and water conservation fund permanently funded and and everything coming through with that bill. I mean, these are, as I know, you know better than anybody. This is proof positive of the impact that every person can have because this just didn't happen by accident. Yeah, it's. I think that's the value in celebrating the successes is for people to understand, wow, we made a difference. Jason Chevitz decided he was going to pull his bill because he got 300,000 <laughs> emails or you know mm-hmm. whatever it is and everybody needs to share in those successes and and feel that wow I did make a difference because back to my thought I we do have conservation for the people and by the people it's just whether or not we're going to grab our the microphone or the grab the the pen and and uh do what we need to do to make it work and what a country huh it is a good friend of mine taught me that saying he lives in marquette michigan and whenever my buddy mark hervinen he whenever things are going good he looks at me and he always says what a country and uh, so I've kind of stole that from him in the last 15 years. And uh, whenever I'm excited or satisfied about something or feel that mission accomplished, I'm like, what a country. <laughs> <laughs> you could probably say the same thing, though, when things aren't going so great, just with a slightly different tone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a country. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But um, one of the things that, at this point in my life, Mark, being 55 years old, I I have all these landscapes that I still want to go explore. I feel blessed to have traveled so many of them. And a guy we both know, Hal Herring, uh, one time Hal and I were talking, and he said in, in his somewhat Alabama-Montana-ish accent, <laughs> yeah. these damn landscapes. They're the ones that form you, and that's the ones you want to protect. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what, Hal? You're right. The landscapes that form me, both physically, but the way I see the world and the way I see things going forward, those are the landscapes that I I want to get to. And when I was reading your book uh, or listening to your book, and you talked about going up to Alaska and is it the Yukon Charlie? Is that where you guys were at? Yeah, exactly. I've not been there. I was supposed to go there with my grandpa. Uh, he was an Alaska resident. We were going to fly up in there, uh, go into the Brooks Range and sheep hunt. Uh, is the Yukon Charlie on the south side of the Brooks Range? 
It is south of the Brooks. Yeah, correct. And, but he got sick and we thought, well, we'll go next year. Well, he never recovered enough to go sheep hunting again. So I, my idea of going on a sheep hunt there with my grandfather never happened. Uh, but I see the pictures of him and my uncles up there, sheep hunting and caribou hunting. And I have a burning desire to go there so much that in 2021, we're going up there floating and doing a, a ptarmigan hunt. Oh, and wow. It, two birds in one stone. I, there you go. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't mean that to be a pun, but it came out that way. But uh, uh, I want to go ptarmigan hunting. And listening to my family talk about that part of the Brooks Range and then listening to it on your book, that that's one of those landscapes that I think is going to form my view of the world. Or, or how I see, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be like all of a sudden I see things 180 differently, but it's going to add more to the to the the sharpness of the lens through which my world is is viewed. And mm. those kind of yeah. landscapes are the ones at this point in my life I seek out, and I don't care if I end up filling a tag or not filling a tag. It's I've dreamed about this. I've read about this. I've driven by. I want to go do this. And we we need places like that, don't we? Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's spectacular. As I was reading that, I mean, you guys were up there caribou hunting, uh, and reading that, like, man, I can just see walking those along those glacial streams, and it, it just. It, your mind goes there and you start thinking about how crazy would it be if we didn't have these places? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. I can't tell you how many times I thought that over the past, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years that I've been thinking about this more and more and more. Just you get, you get out in country like that and you so quickly realize what's at stake, you know, how lucky we are that we do have that. And I think in, a, in that chapter of the book, when I was there, that was also around the same time, um, not too much farther past when I, um, oh, when we found out we were pregnant, So I'm trying to say. Yeah. And thinking about becoming a father changed a whole lot for me because it all went from what I selfishly wanted to experience and what I wanted to have for now to all of a sudden very um, tangibly my timeline had to change. I all of a sudden had to think not 30 years or 40 years, but 70 years or 80 years. What's my son going to experience? Um, now I have a second son. Uh, you know, I want my children to have, this is the same thing so many of us think, I'm sure. But, you know, we want to make sure our kids have the same opportunities we have. Those things that were formative for you and that were formative for me, my goodness, I want to make sure that they have those same chances that they can experience these things that just changed my life. Um, so it adds just an entirely different, I don't know, there's a different fuel in my tank ever since having, having kids. It's, it's a different kind of thing now. It's, it's, it's yeah. not about me. It's, it's personal in a very different way. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. I, I have a son that will be 30 in next month and I don't think it's too disconnected that my son was born 30 years ago, and that's when I took the head first dive into the deep end of the pool to say, you know what, 
this is about more than just me. This is, yeah. this is uh, someone did something so that I would have all this available to me. I'm bringing someone into this society and I got to do what I can. And I had no idea the pool would be that deep or I'd be out there dog paddling for as long as I have. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't regret one bit of it. No, no hey, at least your head's still above water. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of people who want to throw me a, one of those concrete uh, life rafts, but uh, <laughs> that's all right. Uh, so uh, you, you talk a lot about bison in, when you're in Yellowstone. Yeah. And I am just so enamored with bison in so many ways. I, I've been lucky to have some permits to hunt them and free range bison i i get sad when i think about the way we treat them uh because of the fact that politics doesn't make necessarily make for good uh, conservation and the bison if you and you do a good job touching on this the bison is really the species that paid the price for America to have its pivot point in the late 1800s, where we as a society, led by the founders of the Boone and Crockett Club, uh, most particularly George Bird Grinnell, said, this is never going to happen again. And every time I think of bison, I just think about, they gave so much. They, they, They gave us an awakening there there the tragedy and the liquidation of the bison herds is what brought america to this consciousness of a conservation ethic and it's been celebrated that that or pushed forth you know america where where this land of better ideas where this conservation country society and it it came to that it came to all the the reform and market shooting and other things of the early 1900s and it became the funding of wildlife systems and even became the wilderness act uh, you know the first earth day the earth day was yesterday was it uh, yeah yeah you know all of that stuff 50 years however it has evolved today if you take and follow the trail back to where it all began Everything of our conservation awareness, our environmental consciousness, whatever you want to call it, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, it all has its genesis in the liquidation and depletion of the bison herds of the late 1800s and a small handful of people saying that will never happen again in America. And. you, you know what's as you're saying this, Randy, I'm sorry to interrupt your thought. Yep. Um, but it's so true. And it you know, a lot of that's true because Buffalo were so iconic, so representative of I don't know if we call it, call it the myth of the West, but they're the 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 essence of the West, I guess. I mean, they were so fundamentally important for people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then as Europeans came across, of course, they were very important at that time too. And then as you described, we almost eliminated them. And then all those series of events that you described happened, we kind of saved them from the brink. It led to all these different environmental um, awakenings, maybe you could call them. And 
we had all these successes. But what's sad is that we had all of these successes. We brought all these wildlife populations back from the brink, but only one of them still is not wild and free ranging across the country like all the others. I mean, the buffalo has, I don't know if we really want to dive into this or not, but the current state of affairs with buffalo is so unique compared to anything else out there. They've kind of, to, uh, for lack of a better term, they've gotten the shaft in the beginning and still now in the end. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, the Buffalo. If I could use a modern day analogy, you go to work and there's three or four people that just work their ass off and they, they're responsible for most of the work getting out the door. And they're the ones who are the least appreciated. The guy who's over there, you know, <laughs> kissing ass to the boss or the owner is getting mm-hmm. bonuses and raises and the hardworking dudes and gals are just like, ah. I kind of feel like those hardworking folks are the bison. Yeah. <laughs> in this analogy yeah. it might be a poor analogy but they're so underappreciated their story of what what they represent is uh, i just i struggle to try figure out how to navigate through the politics of our current day and give more voice to the bison slash buffalo because they, yeah. they are that, that that is who got put on the the altar and sacrificed yeah. for all the things you mentioned. They were used. They were weaponized in war with the native tribes. They were, you know, they they fueled the the westward expansion. The, their hides were shipped and used in the in the booming Gilded Age. You know factories and urbanization of america it's like man they they gave us so much and we still appreciate them or at least recognize them to be so little Uh, yeah if you ever if you ever figure out how you can do that you uh just give me a holler i'd love to join the team well, I'd love to help help fight for that cause. It's probably going to take a smart guy like you instead of some hot air blowhard like me. But uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say, maybe I was going to say somebody should write a book. But uh, we've got a friend who already wrote a very good one on that topic, so I think uh, that's already taken. <laughs> yeah, Steve's book on that. You're referring to Steve Rinella's yeah. book, right? Yeah, yeah. That, Not going to top that one. No, it's 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 a if you haven't bought Steve's book, The American Bison. That's the name of it, right? American Buffalo. American Buffalo. Uh, go read it. Uh, it's very, very good. Uh, and I'm not trying to throw a bunch of competition out there for people to buy your book, Mark. They definitely need to <laughs> buy okay. your book. I mean, if, if you if you listen to this and you don't guys go buy the book, That Wild Country, I don't think that they're going to be my friend anymore. <laughs> Well, thanks for putting the peer pressure on them, Randy. Yeah. Since we're there, Mark, where can they buy it? What the heck? I mean, we're we're getting into the commercial side of this. Let's give them one. (laughs) So you can buy That Wild Country. Most places books are sold. Amazon, you can get them online from places like Barnes & Noble or Target. Um, the meat eater website has it for sale as well. So that's the meat eater.com. Um, but I'll, I'm going to throw a special request out there if you don't mind, Randy, Sure. if you're listening to this right now in the spring of 2020 or maybe early summer 2020, as all of these things are going on related to the health crisis, um, 
local bookstores are really struggling because they're shut down in most cases. Um, if, if you've got a local bookstore that you like to go to or that you know of, a lot of them are taking phone and online orders despite being closed at the time, at least while we're recording this. So if you love books like I do, we, we want to keep bookstores around. So I, I'd give you a little bit of encouragement to, to call or place an online order at one of those smaller stores uh, just to help them get through this tough time. If, if you've got the the ability to do that that's that's a way to a way to help a little bit well i like that idea uh here in bozeman on main street there's a great bookstore called the country bookshelf uh, i love that place yeah if you get a chance and you want to just call them i know that they would love to uh help you out and uh, yeah it's great great comment um and if you kind of want to go see a bookstore that's just in itself almost a museum since we're plugging bookstores that have i mean have you been to powell's books in portland i've i've not been there i'm, I'm aware of it I've, I've seen pictures and heard about it it sounds like it's a pretty iconic place but i haven't yeah. been if you're into conservation history and western expansion history they have every book known to man at powell's I don't, I don't get anything for saying that. I'm sure your book is there also. Uh, yeah, I'd love to get there. So, um, gosh, I, I don't want to get on a big tangent here. I want to stick to the focus of your book. Now. So I don't, I don't want to go off the rails here about politics and bison <laughs> and everything else. And But some of the topics uh, lead me to the current situation we're in and I'll I'll tell you a little of my own I'll say the last 12 month history. So in 2018 we had a, a Senate election and, well we had the off year election and in Montana we had a Senate race that yeah. was pretty much uh <laughs> everybody was trying to explain to the voters how great they are on public lands. Isn't that cool to see? Yeah. And I, I I was telling my wife, I said, you know, I never knew when this would happen, but the fact that a Senate race that can possibly flip or the Senate one way or the other is being determined by public lands, conservation, access, clean air, clean water. I said, this is what I, this, this makes me feel like all the work has been worth it. And I'm not saying that I'm not, I don't mean that in the way that I'm responsible for it. I mean that in the way of everybody contributing their little effort towards that end goal has to feel that, man, this is, this is what we were hoping for. We were hoping this issue would raise to its level of priority that Senate races, the balance of the U S Senate even would, could be turned on some of these things. Uh, and, uh, that race came to be, uh, and you know, the end result was the guy who was the best, John Tester was miles ahead on public land issues than his opponent. Well, a bunch of people got pissed off about that. And you, you read where our buddy, Steve Ranella got hacked on, uh, oh, yeah. for, for, uh, 
having tester on his podcast i got hacked on uh not as hard as steve did because i had tester on my podcast and the the invite was made to all candidates that year for my podcast anyhow and i suspect steve did the same uh you know if you want to come and talk public lands and politics my mic is open and so i did that and only one side came to the podcast so <laughs> what do you do if if one party says or one guy says i don't want to come on because i know i'm going to get my ass handed to me <laughs> what, what do you do penalize the other guy <laughs> nothing they can do yeah, yeah so now you're full. yeah so i'm after that happened i i don't want to say i took the year off from politics in 2019 still been very engaged uh a lot going on behind the scenes, but I've tried to let my audience kind of <laughs> rinse their mouth of the, the just the distaste that comes with politics. Um, but here we are in 2020. It's going to be another election year this year, a bigger election year because it's a presidential year. Mm-hmm. But I'm just looking at. Uh, and, and this gives some perspective to how the public land issue has really come to the forefront and everybody should be proud of how, how hard they've worked to get it to this point is we're looking at Montana and Colorado as being two very key Senate races this year. And the balance of the Senate could hang in those two Senate races and the power players and you know the money behind all that the dc machines they understand that and in those two states you know it's going to be the number one topic oh yeah public lands conservation access clean air clean water and (laughs) how cool is it that the the control of the U.S. Senate. Who gets chairmanships or chairwomanships uh, in the U.S. Senate could be determined by how the topic of public lands and conservation and access and the things we love, how those play out in the 2020 Senate races in November. And it's already having an impact. I mean, look at what happened in I don't know what month it was, February or January, when Senator, Republican Senator from Colorado and from Montana were the ones who reached out to the president and said, hey, we got to get this LWCF thing done. And let's be honest, there probably was a little bit of that concern about what you just described, right? This is is an important election year. We need some strong wins when it comes to public lands because this is something people really care about. And... uh, it seemed to make an almost immediate difference because prior to that, the administration had recommended something like reducing the funding for the land and water conservation fund by 97% yep. in their upcoming budget. Yep. And then, then they have this conversation and he sends out a tweet saying, I want it fully funded. Yep. So yeah, we're making a difference. <laughs> and, and so I know the average American citizen says, well, it shouldn't have to be that way. This is just politics. This is just blah, 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 whatever. And you know what? They're right. It is just politics. But if that's the game that we have to play to accomplish the objectives within the framework that politics has become, I'll take the win. 
for sure <laughs> you know absolutely I, I i wish we could just say you know everyone is this idealistic uh, you know altruistic person who goes there and does the right thing for the right reason and i don't care what topic it is you know we're, we're talking about public lands it might be wh- whatever topic someone's concerned about usually decisions get made in your favor because you have the political leverage so how do those of us who produce media in these outdoor spaces create political leverage for the topics we love? <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. So in in that's I mean is it as I'm, as you, as you say that I'm wondering or I'm thinking to myself that that is that's absolutely one of the biggest things that I constantly think about too because I know this is obviously a huge part of your platform and it's something that matters to me. It's, it's how do you do some kind of positive good with the platform that we have, right? Yep. But inevitably, politics come into it, as you just described. So how do you do that, though, without alienating your audience? How do you do that without, you know, putting a nasty taste in everybody's mouths because we don't want to talk about these things or because they can just be controversial and, um, I don't know, sometimes ugly? And I I do think that the way I've come down to thinking about it is, is simply what you said, trying to find those shared end goals that we all have and hope for healthy wildlife, open, healthy landscapes, public access. And if we can focus on those things and then, and, and then causes that can bring us together in defense of those without getting into the name calling, without getting into the he said, she said, or the, you know, this person because they've got this color on their jackets and asshole. Uh, I've always avoided that kind of thing and instead focused on the end goal and what are the practical things we can do, regardless of if this is usually what your team does or usually what your team doesn't. What can we do to get to this place that we do want to get to let's set aside the weird team stuff let's set aside the ancillary things let's step outside of our comfort zone maybe if we have to or extend a hand out to somebody else and say hey get out of your comfort zone step over here for a moment because hey we all love this future end goal let's let's work towards that and that's kind of a nebulous description, I guess. But I try to think about ways to approach how I storytell, what I talk about in the podcast, what I wrote in the book. I've always tried to focus on that kind of way of thinking through it. Yeah, I and I do kind of the same thing. And over time, I've I've refined my approach. There were times where I thought I just need to turn up the volume, and they'll understand me. Well, guess what? The harder I'd turn up the volume, sometimes the more they'd tune me out. And that's uh, a good point. So there's a time and place for uh, at least the way I operate different tactics and different strategies. And for me, it's really easy. You know, you talk about, we, we never want to offend somebody. We never want to upset somebody. And I struggled with that for the longest time. I want to be everybody's friend. I, I, I want to have a good relationship with everybody. And to some degree, you can't that's an unrealistic expectation but there's also to some degree you can do your best to try get to the you know do as much of that as you can what works for me is sitting here in this little studio i'm at and in every office in this building there's a whiteboard with us with 
my writing at the very top that says why. And the why, I'm reading it right now, says is to promote self-guided public land hunting and create advocates for that cause. Well, when you say you're going to create advocates, first of all, I have to accept that by trying to create advocates, there's going to be some people who advocate for the other side, and so they're probably not going to like what I have to say. And that's fine. I, it, it now allows me, it gives me this goal, this mission of here's what I'm doing today. I'm trying to create advocates for this cause. And kind of like when New England goes and wins a Super Bowl, guess what? The Vikings aren't New England Patriot fans or the Atlanta Falcons aren't New England Patriot fans. But the Patriots are out there doing what their goal is. And they can't help it that there's some Patriot or some Atlanta Falcons fans that just don't like them. Mm-hmm. For me, this is my goal. This is what I have to do. I got to do it to the best of what I know how to do. And if there are some people who are upset by it, I get that. And I accept that. I'm not going to go out of my way to piss them off. But it's just, this is how I got to push the ball forward. I got to go score, do what I can to help my team score a touchdown and win the Super Bowl. And so I I know that's a weird way of framing it, but it's helped me accept the fact that some people aren't going to be fond of what I do or how I do it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you something, Randy. I, I have definitely thought about that a lot too. And I had some real worries about publishing this book. If there would be any kind of pushback, if there would be any kind of negativity around you know, I don't think I said anything in here that's not being talked about in some kind of way within our community already. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I call folks out where they need to be called out on some things, just like you do. Yeah. And um, and I was worried, like, will there be some political, or will there be some flack for this? Will there be um, some haters? And yeah, that's something that I had to kind of decide, okay, you know what, you're going to approach this as as factually as you possibly can in as clear-headed a way as you possibly can, and you're going to put it out there. And yeah, if you get, if there's that reaction, that's something that you just kind of have to take because like you said, if you're trying to win the Super Bowl and I'm, I'm going to do it by the rules, I'm going to do it with uh, good sportsmanship, but I'm not going to apologize for trying to win the Super Bowl either. Yeah. Well, when you said do it by the rules, maybe I shouldn't have used the Patriots as the example. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Oh, now all the Patriot fans are going to be on me. <laughs> I know they've, they've had their share of uh, run-ins with uh, with that over the last few years. That's for sure. Yeah, Flategate, I think was was the last one. Yeah, I think so. But no, and and so to your point, and I don't want to dwell on politics per se. More more about strategy than it is about the politics and the in the positions themselves, but I've, I've come to the conclusion and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but there are good people on both sides. Um, and some depending on what, what side they're on. And I, I hate even saying sides because it makes it sound like everyone's on the left or everyone's on the right, where most of America is somewhere in the middle kind of moving back and forth based on the topic. So I'm always careful to say, Oh, there's a left or there's a right. There's, there's perceptions of what's left and what's right. So I, I recorded a podcast that 
will it's going to air uh, here any day, so it'll air before this one. I was approached by some uh, Montana Republican candidates who I've known to be very good on uh, hunting and fishing and access and public lands. But as you point out in your book, the Republican Party at times, both the national and the and the uh, state platforms, have had the disposal of public lands in their platforms. So you can't put that in black and white and then try to run away from it when the rubber meets the road. But there's yeah. a lot of people who don't agree with that, even though it's in their party's platform. So I want to help those people who are the the contrarians to that far right. Or say it was a Democrat who is very big, staunch supporter of the Second Amendment, even though some of their platform stuff on the Democratic side is a you know gun control infringement on the Second Amendment, blah, blah, blah. I purposely go and seek those people out. And I want to give them more voice and more platform. And in the Montana governor race this year, uh, I'm, I'm given a lot of airtime to, uh, our current attorney general, Tim Fox and his running mate, John Kenoki, uh, because they are, they're going out there and they're grabbing this public land conservation, clean air, clean water issue and say, you know what, we're not giving that to anybody. We want to own it. And regardless of where that election ends up. I think we who have platforms and we who communicate can play a role in distilling some of the stereotypes that America is all a right or all a left. And Mm -hmm. for me and my audience and the way I'm looking at it, I think I can go out and I can find those people who defy those traditional definitions. And they're taking some risk by moving around in the middle and not being all on one side or all on the other. So. I, I, my, my platforms, unfortunately in 2020 are probably going to go back to having some, some dose of politics and policy, but that's why we get up every day at this office and people will say, well, why are you doing informational content about how to make people more successful elk hunters? Well, because if they're public land elk hunters and they have more success, they're going to value those public lands even more. And they're going to become advocates. And so there is a method to my madness. It might not be a good method and it might not be understandable, but every bit of what we do is driven by that why that's written on our boards. Yeah. It's it's funny you bring this up because I was just uh, earlier today reading some stuff from a writer by the name of Ed Abbey. Yeah. And uh, and he, he wrote something that I really love that's, that's kind of along these lines where he, he was speaking to the fact that of course, we need to have that why and we need to fight for these causes. But at the same time, you don't want to burn yourself out. And I actually posted on Instagram earlier today. Uh, if you don't mind, I want to read this sure. quote. It's a good one. He says, uh, <clears throat> he says, do not burn yourselves out. Be as I am, a reluctant enthusiast, a part-time crusader, a half-hearted fanatic. Save the other half of yourselves and your lives for pleasure and adventure. It's not enough to fight for the land it's even more important to enjoy it while you can, while it's still here. So get out there and hunt and fish and mess around with your friends. Ramble out yonder and explore the forests, climb the mountains, bag the peaks, run the rivers, breathe deep of that yet sweet and lucid air. 
sit quietly for a while and contemplate the precious stillness, the lovely, mysterious, and awesome space. Enjoy yourselves. Keep your brain and your head and your head firmly attached to the body, the body active and alive. And I promise you this much. I promise you this one sweet victory over our enemies, over those desk-bound men and women with their hearts in a safe deposit box and their eyes hypnotized by desk calculators. I promise you this. You will outlive the bastards. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? That's pretty good. You gotta, we gotta fight the good fight, but then you also have to remember to enjoy the thing you're fighting for. And if you do those two things, I think it's the cycle that fuels you on and on and on. Oh man, we need more Edward Abbey's along the way. Yes, um, yes, he was a he was a firebrand. Yeah, when, when did he pass away? Like ninety or somewhere in there. 80, 80 something. Okay. 83, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I think. If, if anyone is buried in the desert, they should follow and read some of his stuff, too. I mean, that what you yeah. read there, uh, it just, as you were reading it, it struck me. Of, yeah. That's the, I, I could never say it as eloquently as he did, but me giving my audience a break from politics in 2019 was a bit of that same feeling of, you know what? I don't want to wear people down. I don't want it to always be this grind. I want people to celebrate and go and do it and enjoy and live life. So, (laughs) what a great quote. Dang. I'm going to have to get that one one. Yeah. Yeah, check out, uh, uh, I can't remember if that one's in Desert Solitaire or uh, there's two other books, Beyond the Wall and The Journey Home. And I can't remember if that one was pulled from which one of those two. I had it written down. But uh, but Desert Solitaire would be my first recommendation. If anybody wants to try some Edward Abbey, read that. It is amazing. Wow. I... I, I wonder if the audience is like, all these people do is sit around and read books. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, right now, Randy, with a newborn and a two-year-old and lockdown, uh, other than working and cleaning up after kids, uh, that is all I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it works great for me, and I, I want people to buy your book and not download it on Audible, but. For what I do, I spend so much time on the road and uh, uh, going to trade shows in the winter and spring and then just out in the wilds in the, in the fall. Having these where I can listen to them and I can just lay in my tent and be listening to your book or, or something else that, that strikes me. Uh, is very compelling and uh, true to the moment of what I'm doing. Uh, I hope people take advantage of that. But if they do that, they might listen to fewer podcasts, and then you and I'd be <laughs> SOL, Mark. Out of a job, yeah. yeah. I will tell you, um, yeah, you know, if, if if anyone out there is is generous enough to want to pick up a copy of the book, if they get the hard copy, that's amazing. But the the audio version too, I, I really appreciate that. All that helps. And I will say that um, if you do like podcasts, a lot of people have reached out to me and said that getting the audio 
version is a really cool way to do it. I did actually narrate it myself, which was an interesting, yeah, I, I, I went to a special studio where we did this. And for three days, I just read my book out loud over and over and over again. And there's a producer there who says, nope, read that again. Or nope, you said that wrong. Or nope, you're an idiot. You're pronouncing it the wrong way. <laughs> and, um, it was a hell of an experience. Literally, I couldn't talk after it. They had special cough drops, special teas, special vaporizer things. It was quite quite the deal. But um, <laughs> It's kind of cool that it turned out. Well, I was glad that when I turned it on that you had narrated it. Because a lot of times, like James Willard Schultz, I don't know if you've ever read any of his books, but Mm -mm. they they are so good. My favorite one of his is My Life as an Indian. Uh, He came from the the East, uh, somewhat well-to-do guy, which... Kind of as a pattern, right? Back in the 1800s, it was all the well-to-do guys who had the money to come out and live these interesting lives. Uh, he got off the, the boat in Fort Benton, Montana, and over time became a trader with uh, another guy, and they traded with the Blackfeet. Uh, but he ended up marrying a Blackfoot woman. But he is a prolific writer. He became James, uh, George Bird Grinnell's personal guide when Grinnell would come to Montana. <laughs> and his books are marvelous to read. They're so colorful with every detail. And then I listened to the narrative. It's like, who, who decided this guy should narrate that book <laughs> <laughs> on, on Audible? But it's still, I don't know, maybe if I hadn't read the book 12 times before I got it downloaded again, just because I'd like to revisit it, maybe I wouldn't have had my own narration in my head and it wouldn't have seemed right. so, so different. Well, it would have. It's funny you say that, though. It would have killed me to hear somebody else read my book because yeah. as I was writing it, I, I write as I speak and, and I literally, I'll write something and as I'm editing it, I, I read it out loud to myself to make sure it sounds right to the ear. And there's a certain way that, there's a certain um, emphasis put on certain parts of the sentence. There's a certain cadence that I am reading it and writing it, and, and it's just the way it should sound for it to get the effect that I'm going for. But if someone was just reading the words without knowing that, they could totally get it wrong. I think I'd be pulling out my hair if I listened to somebody else reading. It. I'll be it's all it's all wrong. It's all wrong. Mm. So I'm I'm very glad that I had the chance to read it myself. So at least people that listen to that can hear the way that I was trying to tell that story and. And when you read the physical version, you get to you get to do it yourself, and maybe it's a little bit different, and that's cool. But um, but yeah, it was it's cool to get to have that out there. Well, if you want some really colorful reading about what the West was like before the you know the taming of the West, and his his writing is even more colorful than Lewis and Clark stuff. Uh, I read it and it's just like, oh man. And maybe it's because I live here in Montana and I hunt and, and travel through a lot of the places, the landmarks that still bear the names that he wrote about. Uh, maybe that gives it a better connection to me. But if you like yeah. adventure, Western hunting uh, stuff, James Willard Schultz is really, really, really good stuff. Um, I'm going to check that out. But Edward Abbey, to me, our modern day Edward Abbey is our buddy Hal Herring. Yeah, it, it, I, I can see that. Do, do you know that Hal's working on a public land project? 
I do. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for that. Yeah. I, you know, I was dropping messages of, this morning and, uh, I was trying to pump, prime him or, or get some, some little tidbits from him for our podcast here. Uh, but we got distracted by some other conversation. <laughs> but, uh, I, I tell Hal <clears throat> that he is like the, uh, in the outdoor literary world, Hal is my version of John Prine. Uh, John Prine <laughs> could look at life that we all think is so complex and he could make so simplistically make it so obvious. And, uh, I told Hal, you're kind of my John Prine. He's like, I'm not sure what to make of that. (laughs) (laughs) If you know John Prine, he recently passed away from COVID-19. Yeah. What what an amazing storyteller. And and the the people like Hal and and others, I have a buddy, Elliot Woods, who does a really good job on other topics of bringing this stuff up. I tell him that I love the fact that you deny me the comfort of ignorance is the sentence I use. And, Elliot's like, can I steal that from you? I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Probably not worth anything. But <laughs> we we all can have a level of comfort in our own ignorance, or at least I know I can. And when someone is communicating with me, I want them to deny me that comfort. I want them to force me to think, to push my boundaries, to think about how did they see that versus how I would have seen it. Or, okay, we followed a similar path. How did... How, why didn't I see that along the way? Or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. So, uh, and where that gets me to in, in your book, Mark, is that uh, I think everyone who reads your book, maybe, and you, maybe you've got this feedback, is everyone's going to take from it something slightly different just because of who we are and, yeah. and their, their biases or, or their level of, of, of understanding, or in my case, my ignorances, if that's a word, uh, <laughs> uh, are going to be different than someone else. And so yeah. the, your book is going to make a huge impact on so many people in so many ways that you probably didn't even think or, or expect. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I, I, actually, I actually got an Instagram message just last night that was pretty cool and I don't want to try to claim full credit for this but he said something on the lines of the fact that he was thanking me for writing the book and how inspired it uh, inspired he was after reading it and how he said that it inspired him so much that he's decided to go back to college and get a degree related to conservation and wildlife biology so that he can start making a positive difference himself Whoa. and that was pretty wild to Ooh. to hear that kind of thing I, that's that's the coolest thing about the stuff we do, Randy, getting to whether it's write a book or do a podcast or produce a conservation film, um, you know, to be able to have a chance to positively influence somebody like that is is the is the best thing I could ask for, and I'm just very thankful that I get the chance to do that a little bit. Yeah, how has the book been received across? I mean, if you had to, did it? Has it been received better than you expected? About what you expected? Did, surprises yeah you know i think better than expected um i would say that 
you know, I had high hopes, Mm -hmm. you know, like the pie in the sky. Oh man, I hope it does well. I hope people like it. But then there was also a big part of me, again, going back to that imposter syndrome, like, ah, this is going to go out into the world and people are going to think I'm an idiot or people are going to, they're going to hate it. Or I, I, I love, I love, I love, I love to read. I'm a bookworm. I've got hundreds and hundreds of books. It's my thing. And so I... I guess I have really high standards for myself because I'm, I, I want to be as good as all these other books that I love so much. And I, I don't think it's as good as some of my favorites. It, it isn't. It isn't. Um, but I was comparing it to that in my own head. So I'm, even when I was done with it and it's shipped out there, I'm like, ah, it's not good enough. Ah, it's not as good as this thing or it's not as good as that thing. And uh, you eventually just have to say, all right, you know, I did the best I could do in that moment. I put my heart, blood and sweat and tears, everything into it. And, you just have to put it out there and let it be what it is. And, and eventually you have to, you, you, you got to let your baby grow up, I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and that was a scary thing. That was a scary thing. Um, but I, I have been pleasantly surprised how positive the feedback's been. People have, have probably liked it better than I thought even. And, um, and it's sold enough that I don't think it's a failure. So that's great. And I hope, I think I'm going to have chance, a chance to write more, which I'm really excited about because this is definitely the hardest, most frustrating, challenging project I've ever done. I mean, pounding my head against a wall a whole lot, uh, just, it was killing me. But at the same time, it's been the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. And so uh, when I grow up, I want to I wanna write books is basically where I'm at now. <laughs> so wow. I want to keep doing this. And I, I think it... I think I'll have the chance to do that. So I'm very excited and thankful for that. Well, I'm, I'm glad people like you are willing to do it because the modern huntsman asked me to write an article or a piece. I said, keep it within a thousand words about traditions in hunting. Well, I spent two weeks and I couldn't keep it under a thousand words. It ended up like 1150 <laughs> and it took me two weeks to write 1100 words, Mark. Yeah, I hear you. I, I would be older than Methuselah's grandmother by the time I wrote a three-page book at the rate I could. <laughs> it's a, it can be a chore, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, gosh. But in doing this, there had to be some pieces that got cut that maybe you wished, oh, dang, I wish I could have kept that in there. Were there any of those things that are required in a manuscript for a book? Oh yeah. Um, it's funny you bring that up though. I don't know if I can remember a specific thing as I say that, but yeah, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of editing and cutting. Um, you know, there was one story, I had a whole chapter almost that spoke to, um, a trip I took and that got completely taken out. That was, uh, a backpacking trip I took with, my wife and a really good friend of mine and his wife in the in the Tetons actually, <laughs> and it was it was another one of those disaster trips. We got a flat tire at the trailhead, had to go back in town because I couldn't get the tire off. It was like rust. The, the lug nuts were rusted onto the tire. Couldn't get that off, so we had to go back in town. And it just a whole week. Larry, very long story. We got up to this mountain basin where we were going to camp. My wife fell into a river, <laughs> cracked her hip really bad. Ooh. It was just one of those kinds of trips, um, but but it was it was also a really cool trip in that I think part of what I tried to achieve this book in this book was represented by this experience in that I wanted to to open 
the the doors to this experience that I've come to love so much, these places, um, these public lands that I've come to love so much. I have this like really strong desire to try to introduce my friends and family and those that are from back home or that haven't done these things. I, I've always had this pull, like, oh, you got to see this. You got to experience this. Trust me, I'm not crazy. This is, <laughs> this is life-changing. And so this was my buddy's first trip out here and his girlfriend or wife, I think at the time, I can't remember. Um, but it was their first experience doing this kind of thing. So there was all this pressure inside of me. Like, it's got to be good. It's got to be a great trip. It's got to, it has to wow them. Like my first trip out here wowed me. Um, so there was all these anxieties and then everything went wrong. And it was one of those interesting trial by fires that in the end, despite the disasters, um, they had that life-changing experience still in their own way. It wasn't the way I would have written it up. It wasn't the way I thought it would go. But um, but they had that kind of epiphany, that public land epiphany. And and it didn't end up making the book, but maybe it'll be in something else because it, it really nicely kind of tied a bow on a little bit of what we're trying to do here, that if you can get people to experience these things and see them and feel them, you you get that first step towards building an advocate and somebody that cares and someone who's willing to fight. And, and, you know, that's, that's what happened to me. That's what happened to you. That's what happened to all of us. And, uh, it was an interesting story that kind of illustrated that, I guess. Wow. Well, uh, when you have to cut stuff like that, or maybe with the benefit of reflection now, of what you started with and what you ended up with and just the benefit of feedback from readers, uh, if you were to do a volume two, do you have a list of landscapes and stories <clears throat> that would be part of a, a volume two? Not not that I'm saying you will do a volume two, but <clears throat> for me, every time I go somewhere, all of a sudden I have a new story and a new landscape. I oh, yeah. See. So true. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things like that, that, that didn't make into the book. And I've actually had people say, I can't believe you didn't include this story. I can't believe you didn't talk about that trip. Um, so there's a long list of, of worthy places. Um, but one that just comes to mind right off the bat was actually a recent trip. Last fall, I went to the Boundary Waters yep. and did a canoe in backcountry, whitetail, grouse hunt slash fishing trip. And, and that was such a, such an incredible place experience that if I, if I do another book where I can fit that story in there somehow, absolutely would like to, because uh, that's another one of those places too, that is one of those landscapes that's at risk. And we're seeing hunters and anglers and other outdoor recreators, you know, stand up and and speak about it. And and it seems to be making a difference. And uh, man, you go into somewhere like that where there's, there's no cars, there's not a lot of other people, there's not a lot of infrastructure, you have to go in by water, you're out there by yourself, you're away from lights and sound, and you're standing there in the middle of the night on a rocky ledge overlooking the lake, and a wolf starts howling across the way, and uh, shooting stars are above you, you have that experience, and you can't help but you can't help but be different afterwards. Yeah. I, as you were saying that, you know, I grew up about a hundred miles west of the boundary waters and I, I took for granted that everybody could put their boat in on this little river that came through our town and float for two days and not see another person. I just thought, Oh, that's kind of how the world is. I had no idea how lucky I was, how spoiled I was. And we would do that and someone come pick us up at the, you know, some whatever 
downriver takeout we'd we'd plan on and we'd fish for walleyes and smallmouth and occasionally someone would hook a muskie and you could go there in the fall you could float it and hunt partridge as they call them in northern minnesota and you would see nobody zero and i thought well this is just life you know this is how everybody does it <laughs> only to realize earlier <laughs> in life how spoiled i was how, but yet how formative those experiences were to me how, yeah. how i actually in a place like northern minnesota had country to be wild in and to go get lost and go adventure and explore that i know it, it just it's what formed the path I was going to take as an adult. There was, there was no doubt that having that at my disposal, as much as I took it for granted and cussed this little one horse town I grew up in, oh, someday I got to leave this place. It was the best place I could have ever grown up. I, I, I love that place. I love those people dearly. I love all that it offered me. It's uh, so, yeah, you, you never know what, where that place is going to be that has an effect on you. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of funny as you describe that, the current situation uh, I'm in right now, actually, and that many people I think are in right now, illustrates how how we can take that for granted sometimes. Because right now, for a lot of folks, we're not supposed to travel far from where we live. And if you don't live close to these places, all of a sudden, now you realize, oh, wow, it was a luxury to be able to drive an hour and get to this public land or to be able to get into this place and go fishing or this place and go hunting. You know, I, right now I'm, I'm stuck in a place where we don't really have very much public land at all. There's nowhere I can go and have a really cool hike. There's nowhere I can go and have some really great fishing close by. Um, I can't get to anywhere and bear hunt anywhere close by. So I'm, I'm kind of stuck away from a lot of those things, wishing that I was on the edge of a national forest in Montana or up in northern Michigan, uh, or one of these places where you do have a little bit more of that access. So I'm definitely at a point right now where I'm uh, much more appreciative than maybe I ever was before about the chances when you do get to be close to those places or those you know those people that get to live in those areas. Just just how good and how great of uh, privilege that is. Yeah. Well, for 18 years I lived there, and I took it all for granted. I guess you know. As we're young, we there's that tendency, and if there is one benefit of getting older and having more aches and pains, it's you maybe look in the rearview mirror and say, you know, I'm not going to take this for granted anymore. I I had it yeah. by the tail. Um, but one of the stories in your book uh, is a place that's dear to me because I went to college in Nevada and I spent a lot of time in the rubies. And I'm reading mm. your story about going up in the rubies beautiful wild desolate place but yet here comes the group of boy scouts and, <laughs> and disrupts your peaceful endeavor uh you write it in a very funny way uh you you do a great job of saying you know what this is the beauty of these public lands is there something here for everybody which i think that that's the message i took from it it took me some intention was it, it oh it definitely was it took me though some real what am i trying to say here i went through a number of other emotions before i ever got to that <laughs> you know what i mean 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I love the rubies. What a wild, desolate place. Hi, Alpine. Oh, it's people don't think of Nevada and think of the rubies. You think of Vegas or Reno or something. It's remarkable. Yeah, I had place. no idea. I had no idea that was there. That blew me away. It was just as spectacular as anything I've seen in the, I don't know, Sierra Nevada of California or the Tetons of Wyoming. I mean, it's that kind of mountain range. I mean, it was stunning. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to wear your big boy pants when you decide you're going to go do a backpack hunt in the rubies. Mm -hmm. I love that place. I I've spent a lot of time there. Yeah. I'd love to hunt it someday. Oh, you need to great archery mule deer hunting in there and Nevada opens their seasons in early August. So you get to go and hunt them in the velvet and they're, they're quite visible because they're usually up in the higher country. Uh, you just gotta <laughs> strap up and say, all right, I'm heading up there. And yeah. it's not, it's not flat country. <laughs> no. Well, it's funny. We were, we were headed in there as myself and a friend and we were just backpacking and fishing, but it was in August and we actually bumped into some hunters. It was the day before opening day of the season. And so a, a lot of hunters coming in. And, uh, as I stopped and talked with the, with a few of them along the way, I got increasingly and increasingly more jealous that they had a bow and arrow with them and that they were looking for deer. And I was, uh, nothing against catching brook trout, but all I was doing was catching brook trout and they're going after mule deer. And, uh, I, I definitely put that on my list of things I need to go back and do because it, such a beautiful place but like you said it, you know add add some deer into the mix and it's a whole another ball game yeah well as i was reading that or listening to that part of it and you you talk about how you resolved that you know this isn't all bad this this means that there's more people using these lands so there's more advocates and more vested parties it it made me think of a hunt in 2009 or 10 we were we got invited to join a friend, Greg Bush, down in uh, Arizona. He drew a Unit 1 archery elk tag, tremendous elk tag. So we go down there a few days before season opens, and we are seeing some whopper elk. I'm like, holy cow. Well, season opens on a Saturday, and all of a sudden, Friday afternoon, the woods is on fire with ATVs. We drive into Springerville. And there's big banners they're putting up or had just put up on Main Street. Welcome to the 2009 or 10 Eastern Arizona ATV Jamboree. And the town (laughs) was overtaken by ATVs and side-by-sides. Every road, every trail. (laughs) Uh I'm thinking to myself, you got to be kidding me, right? Whose idea was this to have an ATV jamboree in the opening weekend of archery out coincide? But uh-huh. afterwards, kind of the same uh, resolution or, or or conclusion of you know what? That's what comes with multiple use lands, and by having multiple use, we have more users, and hopefully, we have more advocates. So. Yeah, I feel like that might have been one of the larger themes for me, uh, just like my, on my own personal journey through writing this book and all these experiences, I think that little epiphany right there was probably one of the biggest things that I personally took away from this whole thing. And that I hopefully communicated throughout the book is this idea of that 
while the shared nature of our public lands oftentimes is what leads to all the controversy and people getting upset about things and the debate and, and variety of things, everyone has their own idea of how these places should be used. Should they be mined or should they be preserved 100%? Should they be logged or should they be used to hunt or should they be used to bird watch? Whatever it might be. That leads to a lot of the tension, almost all of it. But it's also what makes them so special. And, and so I think what I really hoped people could get out of this book, other than just the information and understanding the history and the current events, I hoped to foster this idea of unity. Like, let's come together on the things we have a shared common interest and love for. Yeah, you might want to, you know, bring your 15 best buddies from junior high and make a ton of racket in here, or you might want to drive an ATV on one area where I'd rather hike it. You might want to bird watch. I might want to hunt. You might be from New York City and I might be from rural Michigan, but let's let's work together. Let's set aside the petty differences. Let's let's be understanding and a little bit forgiving of our differences, maybe sometimes, uh, because the ends justify the means. And and that that scenario you just outlined perfectly illustrated that um, in a microcosm. That that's kind of where I came out of this whole. End, end process. And, uh, and I hope maybe a few people feel the same way after reading it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will. It's, it's always that good reminder of, hey, they call them public lands because we, the public, and back to my earlier points of conservation by the people and for the people, um, I think that's the, the frustration that might come in this little temporary period is also the power that keeps these lands protected and valued and will always keep them public is my guess. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, Mark, I've kept you a long time. Uh, Kylie and those two little boys are going to say, Hey, where'd he go? Uh, (laughs) I I could sit here and talk this stuff with you forever. Kind of, as you know, when we were out bear hunting, I probably, chased off all the bears with my bending your ear and telling big uh, stories and lies but i i wish we could do that right now what's that i said i wish we could be out on a mountain chasing bears right now yeah it's uh it, it's gonna happen here for me and oh probably in the next 10 days two weeks something like that i uh i like to let it green up a little bit but yeah i'll i'll shoot you a text how's that Hey, Mark, yeah, let, the same three weeks had under, and I saw just as many bears, zero. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it goes better than that. Uh, well, thanks for writing this book, Mark. You did a great job. Uh, again, to give a plug to, to you, uh, if you want to tell people what website, where they can buy it, or how, how you'd want them to get it, um, yeah. feel free to let them know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Randy. I, I, I really appreciate you letting me talk about the book and, and sharing this with, with your community. The, the book, again, is called That Wild Country. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on many other booksellers' websites. You can find it at themeateater.com. Um, but if you want to get it from a local bookstore right now, given these tough times, that might be uh, a cool thing to do to help those folks out too. So yeah, can't tell you how much I appreciate everyone picking up a copy at means the world and hopefully you'll enjoy it and, and learn a thing or two as well yeah and if they want to listen to a really good podcast don't forget about wired to hunt 
right? Yes. Yep. Wired to Hunt podcast still, still cranking out weekly episodes and uh, having fun with it. Yeah, and they could just get that through their Apple uh, podcast app or Stitcher or iTunes or any of them, right? Yeah. Yep. It's available anywhere podcasts are found. Um, yeah, that's that's where the podcasts are, and I, I still do some article writing for the Mediator website. Um, also host a show of ours that's on our YouTube channel that's about uh, hunting and private land conservation, which is a whole different topic. But uh, that's called the Back Forty, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, you'll be able to find all that stuff there. Cool. Well, Mark, thanks so much for your time, and uh, I'm going to let you back to your family here. Tell them to send me a bill, or you can send me a bill. <laughs> Um, but I know I appreciate it. My audience appreciates it. And you always bring a, a really good perspective and the clarity through which you can see things and communicate complex topics is greatly appreciated. So appreciate you. Randy. Yeah. Hey, my pleasure. It's it's a lot of fun and hopefully we can uh, catch up in person again soon too. All right, let's do that. Folks, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Hope you're staying well, stay healthy, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one.